Well, a really good friend of mine who uh, retired as a captain from the Richmond Fire Rescue has taught me an awful lot over the years about safety. And I'm, I'm really glad for this because some of the activities that he and I have been involved in, uh, high-risk things such as riding motorcycle and shooting shotguns and the like involve danger. And so to have a person who's not only, you know, ex-emergency services, but also ex-military is very helpful to have around. And I've learned from him that uh, the potential for danger really increases when one is either unaware or distracted. You see, when we're unaware, we're just simply not looking. When we're distracted, it's harder to look. And so uh, my brother, he uh, taught me, actually he certified me in emergency uh, first aid and he said, look, this is what we used to do in the fire department when I, when my, when I took my crew to a call. He said, I would tell the guys when, you, when we arrive at the scene, take, you know, get out of the vehicle, take three deep breaths, collect your thoughts, assess the situation and only enter when and if it's safe to do so because he said, don't put yourself in danger because then you're no good to anybody at the scene. It's called situational awareness. And so he also told me some training exercises they used to do at his uh, detachment there in the fire department when new rookies would, uh, would come onto the, to the hall. They would set up a, a training exercise. They'd bring a pumper truck onto the parking lot and they'd extend the ladder you know, with the water cannon. And they would point the cannon intentionally down, without the rookies knowing this, down at the water tower where the guys would be doing their training exercises in full gear, you know, running up and down the stairs, pulling, you know, dummies out of the burning building and, uh, and dragging hoses up and down all the time, fully dressed in their gear. And at the right time, the captain would give the signal to the guy up at the pumper trunk when they were coming down the stairwell and he would, he would say, now. And they would just blast... Uh, uh, a loaded water cannon at these guys and just wash them down, safely of course, down the stairwell. And it taught them to look for danger and be aware of everything that's going on around them. Now listen, from the text that was just read for us, as the gospel spread due to persecution and the scattering of the church, they had its first lesson in situational awareness as they encountered a, a, a distraction that threatened the advancement of the gospel. It was a danger to the church, collectively and individually. All throughout Acts, we see our enemy trying to do several things to stop and thwart the mission of the church. If division doesn't work, if discouragement doesn't work, if destruction, ravaging persecution won't work to stunt or stop the growth of the church, Satan, who does not easily give up, friends, he will switch strategies and he will deploy other tactics to try to stop the spread of the gospel and the unity of the church. This time, it was distraction from the gospel message and its power in the form of a counterfeit message and a power that was coming through the practices and the voice of one man named Simon. How many of you have ever, do you remember playing the childhood game Simon Says? Like, I don't know if it's still a thing. I, I assume it is. Looked it up on the internet to see if it's still out there. But I played it as a kid and I, I remember the whole game being based basically on deception and distraction. Really, the role of Simon is to try to knock other participants out of the game so that you know he is the only one left standing by getting 
the other players in the game to mess up based on what he says or doesn't say and what he does or doesn't do. And if you don't follow Simon's instructions exactly, you're out of the game. Well, in Acts 8, we have a Simon who said and did a lot of things that if the church had followed exactly, would have presented great danger and essentially knocked them out of the game. And so Philip, who was spreading the gospel at that time, he called on support. He, uh, he called for a different Simon, Simon who is now called Peter and John, to come from Jerusalem uh, to counter what Simon was saying and to keep the church on track and safe from this danger of distraction that Simon was presenting. And there's a lot, a lot, friends, that we can learn about these distractions that still pose a dangerous threat to the church today. The issue is, which Simon are we going to listen to? Because there's a lot of voices out there, a lot of distraction that threaten to throw us off track or completely sweep us away. Last week, our church leaders received an email, an encouraging one of appreciation from one of our valued ministry partners who greatly appreciated clarity from the elders uh, when Pastor Ron gave an update on, uh, online in our April 11th service. Uh, quote, during this period of cacophony of voices. And I just love, I love that she used that word because I love the word cacophony. It means a harsh mixture of sounds and noise that bring confusion instead of clarity. So Peter and John were sent to bring clarity to the cacophony of what Simon the sorcerer was saying and doing. And so uh, today I wanna just list and talk very briefly about these six distractions and dangers that have a potential to knock us out and another six that counter them and keep us in the game, so to speak. The first one is sinful practices. Sinful practices will distract and knock us out of the game. I, I wrestled with whether to say, you know, call these practices pagan or unbiblical or ungodly or evil or wicked, but the fact is they're all true. Simon's proclivity towards magic had not entirely left him because he was seeking power instead of seeking God. And when that happens, we just switch practices. The, the root is still there. If we don't kill the practice, we will just find another one. Power was the underlying heart issue and sorcery was the manifestation. It was the practice of something deeper that was going on. And you see, God's people have always been warned over and over and over again to not engage in the practices of the culture around them, but to always go to God and to seek him first. Everything that we need, God has always said, is found in me. So come to me and practice the things that I ask you to do. Seek me because the practices of sin, sinful practices always lead us away from him. And that is the, that's the bottom line here in Acts chapter eight and it is the bottom line for us too. So some questions for us this, uh, today. What are, what are you seeking? What am I seeking instead of God and practicing that will you know, that we believe will bring us fame or relief or satisfaction or purpose or comfort or recognition or retribution? Do we seek these things in our possessions, even good things like our recreation, by attention getting or seeking, by illicit or addictive behavior such as sex or drinking or eating or gambling? Is it, is it something like gossip or slandering? 
You see, any practice that is not God-approved, and we, you know, we only have to read our Bibles to find out what God approves of and what he doesn't. Any practice that is not God-approved is a path towards sure destruction. And many churches are going down that path of embracing Embracing, not engaging. We need to engage culture, but they are embracing culture lock, stock, and barrel, particularly right now in the area of sexuality, and it is destroying us. And and we don't like to talk about it, but we need to. You see, sin is what takes us away from experiencing God intimately. Therefore, God warns his people to avoid the worship or the practice of anything other than himself. By contrast, if God's people fully obey, if obedience is a way of life for them, the promise is that we will enjoy all of his blessings. But you see, sinful or unbiblical, ungodly practices are really symptomatic of deeper heart issues. And so the next thing that is that we see in our text is pride. Simon was going around saying that he was somebody great. So, newsflash, we're We're not that great. God is great. We're not even good, Jesus said, let alone great. The opening lyrics of the song Three Dressed Up as a Nine by Trooper come to mind. I'm dating myself, Al. The opening lyrics say this, hey, wait a minute. Who do you think you are? Coming on, coming on like you're some kind of movie star. That That was Simon. Is it me? Is it you? good quote I heard this past week is that a person who is wrapped up in themselves makes a very small package. The third thing, and this comes before pride, was believing your own press. Not only did Simon believe that he was somebody great, but he allowed his ego to be stroked by everyone else and he gloried in the attention. Four times in our text it says, and they paid attention or they were amazed at what Simon was doing and saying. A number of years ago, actually it's probably a number of decades ago now, a man named Gordon MacDonald had a, uh, a very dramatic and significant fall from grace when he was caught in adultery. And he was the senior pastor of a large church and he was removed from that position and amazingly, uh, through a period of discipline, was uh, restored eventually to that position where he still pastors as uh, emeritus pastor. He re- he's written many books, Gordon MacDonald, and uh, two of them are Ordering Your Private World and When Men Think Private Thoughts. By the way, he was called upon by Bill Clinton, President Clinton, when he was going through his stuff uh, to be an, an advisor and an encouragement and a support to Bill Clinton. And this was after he had been restored. But here's the point. Gordon MacDonald, before he, before he fell into the sin of adultery, uh, reflecting back on, the, on that time, he said, it all began when I, when I began to believe my own press. People were praising him. People thought he was somebody great and he was believing all of it. You see the progression backwards? We believe our press, we fall into pride, and all of a sudden our practice becomes sinful, ungodly. And the question that we need to all ask ourselves is, who are we listening to most? Do we listen primarily to our friends or colleagues, our idols, our, our wannabes, or do we listen to God? 
Do we listen to what he says? Interesting uh, statement that Jesus made in Luke chapter 6, verse 26. He said, woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. There's some other things that are involved here that are a danger. The next one is the love of money. Of course, scripture says that the love of money is the root of all evil and destroys our relationships and eventually destroys us. <laughs> um, my son sent me a, a link to a news article a number of weeks ago about a woman in the States who won a sizable lottery. And apparently, for good luck, so she says, she wrote the name of her favorite nephew on the ticket. Well, the lottery corporation, when she turned in her winning ticket, saw two names on it. So they wrote two checks. And they split this large uh, winning 50-50 uh, to her and to the nephew. And immediately she said, it's not his, it's mine. I just wrote his name on there for good luck. And she immediately took her nephew to court and sued him for what she thought rightfully belonged to her, and she was bitter. It was an angry all-out fight, and what turned into this nephew being essentially her favorite good luck charm was now her enemy. A question, what do, what do you look at? What do you think of first in the day? Do you go to your Bible, or do you go to check maybe your bank account? Jesus said you can't serve two masters. Nikki Gumbel said, you know, money is to be used but not loved. Don't love money and use people. He said, love people and use money. And he said, be extremely careful to avoid any situation in which ministry is being used for personal gain. How do we know that Simon loved money? I mean, not only did he offer to buy, you know, this power and gift of the Holy Spirit, but Peter said to him, I can see, and this is the fifth thing, that you are in the gall of bitterness. Bitterness is an interesting word. It's, by the way, it's like a double negative, really. By nature, gall is bitter. And so, essentially, Peter was saying, you are the bitter of bitterness. Simon was the bitterest of the bitter. The original language carries the idea here of bitter, bitterly envious, resentment, jealousy, envy. I think Simon saw what the apostles were doing. He wanted it so bad he offered them money, but I think his ability to make money based on his practices and his power, amazing people was taken away from him and he did not like it. It's amazing how many people live in bitterness and resentment. And I want to ask you today, have you dealt with or are you dealing with any current unresolved issues of resentment or bitterness in your life, where do they come from? Are you addressing them? Hebrews 12 says, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and to defile many. And the last thing we see here is the bond of iniquity. Now we come full circle. You see, sin, sinful practices, which is fueled by Pride, ego, money, bitterness, other things of the heart, issues of the heart, they put us into bondage. Iniquity puts us in bondage. And loving our sin, listen, loving our sin more than the Savior keeps us in bondage. The bond here that is used in the original language is a bond so tight that the closest comparisons of, of the day were of strapping that would hold a ship together 
or of sinew that would hold bone together. It's so tight. That's what these things do in our lives. It, they create a, a bond so strong that it is so hard to break free from. But listen, listen. But for the grace of God, that list, it's me. It's you. It's all of us. At our worst, we are all a Simon. And that's why we need to listen to what the other Simon, Peter and his co-apostle John, what they had to say that will keep us safe, that will keep us from danger in the game. And the first thing they did is the focused on was they focused on belief in the gospel. We need to believe the gospel. You see, what goes on in our head makes its way to our heart and then it becomes an issue of practice, our hands. That's the progression. It's what we do that starts with what we think. Matt Brown said, too many believers think the good news is old news. But we haven't heard the gospel too much. We haven't heard it enough. Like many facets to a beautiful diamond, the gospel has an infinite beauty that can never be exhausted. The more we look into the gospel, the stronger and more satisfied we will be in our faith. How true. You see, the gospel is the power of God. The gospel is redeeming. It has the ability to redeem us. Jesus is able to take all of the Simon stuff that we all deal with in our lives and he is able to forgive it and redeem it. The reality is that none of us can live in complete obedience. There was only one. His name is Jesus. And as a result of Jesus' obedience, he's the only one that is able, was able to bear my sin, your sin, and not only that, but to bear the wrath of God at the cross. The wrath that we deserve, he bore it for us. He took our place when he gave his life and shed his blood on the cross. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection gives us life and it frees us from bondage. The gospel is liberating. He who has the Son set he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. I have come, Jesus said, to set the captive free. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, the Bible tells us, there is freedom. The gospel is also about generosity, about giving, not taking and getting in greed. It's about giving. And the gospel points us to the one who is truly great. That's the second thing that is, we see in this passage is the greatness of God. You see, meditating on the greatness of God will mitigate any thought that there's anything great in us. The apostles, we see them performing great signs and wonders and miracles. And when they laid their hands on people, they were healed and the spirit was given. And Simon wanted all of that. He sought those things, not the greatness of God. I want to read for you a few verses from Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40, beginning at verse 25, God said, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name? By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint 
or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths faint and shall be weary. And young men shall, be, fall, shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. And they shall mount up with wings like eagles. And they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. If we would only turn our attention to the greatness of God, there we would find our strength and our power and our ability in him. As you know, recently Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, uh, died. And last week was his funeral. And uh, CTV News published the the order of service for the funeral. And so I clicked on the link because I was interested in what was done word for word. Action for action, the whole order of service was laid out. And I stopped roughly in the middle, maybe two-thirds through, where they just read a list of Prince Philip's titles. He has, you know, he has 16 different titles that he goes by. And I thought to myself, if this is how we honor an earthly prince, how much more should we honor the King of Kings? This is what the Lord says said Jeremiah, he who appoints the sun to shine by day and who decrees the moon and the stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord Almighty is his name. Deuteronomy 32, for I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. Psalm 47, clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with the loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For the God is the king. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. He deserves all glory, honor, and praise. Jesus said in John chapter seven, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. That word falsehood is the same word that is used of Simon. It's the same word, the bond of iniquity. There is no iniquity in the person who seeks the glory of God. The third thing that will keep us on track is the fullness of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is essential to our lives and one of the main reasons Peter And John went to Samaria in the first place. We need to walk by the Spirit, the Bible says. Be led by the Spirit. Display the fruit of the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. Operate in the gifts of the Spirit. The Spirit will give us power, wisdom, and insight that comes from God. The next thing is servitude. Here, I love it. Simon is operating on his own, seeking glory and attention, The other three, Philip, Peter, and John, are working as a team to serve and to deflect the glory to God. They're supporting each other and glorifying God. You see, there's great danger in doing things in isolation. There's no accountability. And Jesus said in Matthew 23, whoever is the greatest 
among you should be the servant of others. That's where true greatness comes from, is to serve others. Fifth, repentance and humility. When Simon was confronted with his sin, he was invited to repent. The gospel must include a message of repentance, of change. We need to name our sin and call our sin what it is. It's wickedness. And the Lord is merciful and gracious. He will forgive. We have a remedy in the death and resurrection of Jesus. The Bible says the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But repentance demands humility. That's why John the Baptist's message of repentance was accompanied with his other proclamation. He must increase and I must decrease. The key here in all of this is if, if we confess. And that leads us into the next thing that keeps us on track. And that is prayer. Prayer friends, is powerful. We see an emphasis on prayer in this text. Don't ever underestimate the power of prayer. There's a couple that I'm doing pre-marriage counseling with at the moment, and uh, I asked them the other day what was the greatest lesson that they've learned in our five or six sessions together so far, and they said it was the very first article that you gave us. It was one from Focus on the Family a number of years ago that talks about Uh, what it means to have real intimacy in marriage, like a God-centered marriage. And one of the emphasis there is prayer. And, And their study shows that when you add prayer into a marriage, even though the divorce rate is extremely high, thoughts of divorce plummet by almost 90% when couples pray together. A survey a number of years ago by the Georgia Family Council found that among couples who prayed together weekly, I'm not talking about daily or a couple of times a day, but weekly, had only 7%, only 7% of those couples had seriously considered divorce compared to 65% of couples who never prayed together. Prayer is powerful. It makes a difference. And this is where things went sideways for Simon. Simon's repentance and humility fell short when he said to to Peter and John, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Instead of taking the initiative and crying out to God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He just said, you pray for me so that nothing bad will happen. Oh, how we need people to fall on the mercy of God and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner and to name our sin. So as we wrap up this this text here, I just want to ask the question, which Simon will you listen to today? Simon, the sorcerer, or Simon Peter and John? There's a choice to be made every day. Our passage kind of leaves us wondering, you know, did Simon change or did he not? History leads us to believe that Simon remained unrepentant, that he likely started his own church or his own sect because what he really wanted was the followers, the gifts, the glory, the prestige, the power. He didn't really want the one who gives those things. He loved his sin more than he loved his Savior. He sought selfish gain rather than the selfish, selfless posture of falling on the mercy of God and Jesus. He had a false humility. He didn't ask for prayer for the strength to repent. He wanted it another way, his way. 
He wanted things to go well for him again. He, he grieved the consequences of his sin, but not the sin itself. His was a me-centered faith, not a take up my cross, self-sacrifice for the glory of God kind of faith. What about you today? What about you? Where are you at in your faith? I want to close with a little passage from Deuteronomy 4. The people of God were seeking idols, other things than, than him. And they literally were visiting foreign nations and participating in idolatry. And God said to them, look, but if from there, if from that place of chasing after idols, if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him when you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget, listen, or forget the covenant with your ancestors which he confirmed to them by oath. Friends, we have a new covenant. That covenant is in Jesus' blood. It's in his broken body. It's in the mercy of God for us who confess, believe, repent, and do things his way. Let's pray together. Oh, Jesus, how we need you. How we need to fall upon your mercy and your grace every day. All of us, Lord, me, my heart is like a Simon. My sinful practices, my sinful attitudes, behaviors, thoughts, God, they're there every day. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And so I thank you, Lord, for the truth of the gospel. I thank you that there is forgiveness and mercy when we confess and repent and fall upon you and name our sin for what it is, wickedness. Oh God, I thank you for these things. I thank you for leaders in the church who hold us accountable so that we don't get distracted and fall into danger and get derailed from the things that you're calling us to do. Lord, keep us on mission. Keep us true to the gospel, to the message of Jesus as a church. Protect us, Lord. Guard our unity. Thank you for what you're doing through us and in us in these days. And I pray that you would increase our fruitfulness and that you would bless us, that you would make your face shine upon us and that you would give us your peace. I ask all of these things in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.